Spirit Radio Podcasts. Wendy, keeping you company until midday today and joined with me now in studio, I have Dougie Hobson of Footprints Bookshop in Dunleary with lots of new releases and also ideas for Christmas gifts as well. Dougie, good morning to you. Uh, Wendy, good morning to you. And uh, very festive here. I love the Christmas tree. We have tree. Our, little, our little mini Christmas oh. tree in our studio and where Dougie is based in Dunleary is certainly very festive at the moment. Lovely uh, Christmas markets and everything going uh, on. Absolutely. And the shop, please come to the shop because we have so much going on and lots of new products as well uh, exclusively now for 2018 great stuff so let's start with the first one which is honesty over silence it's okay to not be okay so tell us a little bit about this book yeah well this is a very kind of I would describe as a sensitive book and why I say that is that it's very much for folk that are challenged by living and you know maybe suffering from depression and um, all the different um, things that that can happen uh, be full of stress and anxiety so it's the book is in two parts it's written by Patrick Regan with Lisa Hoaxmile I hope I've pronounced her name right but Patrick is a very sensitive writer and the first part of the book is learning to let go like you know all the different things you know try to let go of worry try to let go of um, depression um, anxieties all, and stress exactly all that sort of thing and then the 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 second part is uh, learning to be and there's some lovely stories in the book as well like there's there's some uh, very powerful kind of testimonies where where people have achieved to overcome obstacles that they face in life I think the great thing about this book is that especially for people who their faith is very important to them when they're suffering with you know mental health issues whether it's stress mm. anxiety depression is that we feel that we can't talk about it because we're just we're meant to be joyful all the time and of course that's not the case because we are human and God um, talks so much Jesus talks so much in the Bible about basically I want to be there to shoulder your burdens and carry the weight with you uh, he didn't say we wouldn't have weight and so for some people that can be be some of those difficulties but, but it can be very difficult to talk about those things or even how they impact your faith when life is painful when life that's is difficult right. Um, so that's what I think is great about this book because it's tr- it's taking all that and saying, okay, well, how do we let go, as you exactly, say, and then exactly. and then and then be. So yeah. that's really and, and I, I love this. It's okay not to be okay. You know, like that's yeah, which is very. Yeah. It's it's become thank God very well known yes. here in Ireland in terms of uh, a phrase to to mental health to, to use surrounding kind of mental health and all that. Um, it's okay to not to not be okay and it's absolutely okay to talk about it Yes. so hopefully this book will help people do that it's called Honesty It's Okay to Not Be Okay Honesty Over Silence by Patrick Regan and Lisa Hope we are trying our best and that is paperback at 10.50 the next one we have today is Karen Kingsbury when we were young yeah well Karen is just amazing she keeps on like at this stage now she has published over 25 million books she's a bestseller Um, her speciality is fiction and um, here again it's an incredible fiction love story uh, with a good gripping read and um, Karen is so popular that we get pre-orders for any of her publications that uh, that are coming out uh, we have folk who must be uh, on an email list or something because we hear about her new publications through customers um, about They're two months when you're going to have it in two months beforehand exactly and it's, a, it's great to have as well recommendations from Dougie on just really good fiction novels because I love reading I love reading fiction but it's also great to get good recommendations that you know it's going to have good stuff 
stuff in it because what we consume whether it's what we listen to or what we read and sometimes you know you might be reading a book and just it's it, what what's in it isn't isn't kind of good stuff yeah. it's not going to nourish yeah. you um, so it's good to have that uh, recommendation that's Karen Kingsbury it is hardback it's called When We Were Young and that is 19 euro yeah. and the paperback will come out this is what they do they you know, do hardback first and then a few months later, paperback, paperback comes out. Uh, and obviously comes that's out, a bit yeah. cheaper then. Okay, yeah. so the next one is Defiant Joy. I love that. <laughs> Taking hold of hope, beauty and life in a hurting world. Uh, what a really powerful message coming from Statsy Eldridge, yeah. uh, who we have chatted to on this programme. Yeah, oh, she's fantastic. Stacey Eldridge, I've, I've been very privileged now. I've met her twice and she's just an incredible woman. And literally what the title says, Defiant Joy, this is what the book is about um, and in the scriptures it talks about joy and uh, regarding all the different things that have been going on, your, on in your life you can have a, an amazing joy no matter what and um, she of course heads up the Ransomed Heart Ministries and very much she's very much has women at heart like she wrote Captivation and um, you know uh, and she's been over here twice uh, yeah doing the Women's Heart Retreats exactly and I suppose yeah. this is the thing about Stacey just in terms of her work and her writing I mean she sold millions of books but when she writes a book like this Defiant Joy it, it is um, with real life in mind because obviously she has her own life experience hopes and hurts but when she's doing these women's retreats all over the world you know she gets to meet other women <laughs> who themselves will share these same things whether it's hurts anxieties stresses strains and so it's again it's one of those books that it's not talking about some airy fairy idea of joy it's it's how do you actually be joyful in the reality of life exactly. and it's yeah. ups and downs so that yeah. is uh, Stacey Aldridge and Defined Joy and that is paperback and that is 12 euro 50 and the next one is called Taxi Please well, Adventures with Jesus in South East Asia I like the sound I of this tell one you now, well, this is a fascinating book this, this is Trish Phillips and her friend Joanne who in 2003 now that this book is brand new to us we, we only got it a few days ago but um, it's uh, when, when they were middle aged they bought this ticket for Bangkok not knowing what was going to be ahead, ahead of them for the next three months so that's why they they call it Adventures with Jesus in Southeast Asia because they were totally dependent on God's guidance and they had some adventure and some scary moments but when they returned home, they were so grateful to God that they came home in one piece and he kept them safe. But it's, it's, it's an interesting read and, um, you know, there's good stories in it of, right. of, of their adventures. I am an intrepid traveller, so that one certainly catches my eye and it makes brings me back to, I think it was nearly 10 years ago when I did a similar trip around Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam and Thailand. But wow. lovely that it's there. Backpacking. Kind of backpacking, yeah, yeah. yeah. None of this flash packing, Dougie. It was actual <laughs> backpacking. Now, you have some lovely Christmas gifts and stocking fillers. You've got a range of journals, lots of different prices and sizes. Yeah, and, and we've a range of... Pl- like, like as, I, as I said at the very beginning, please, if you're in Dunleary, call into the shop um, because we do have a wonderful range of, of uh, Christmas gifts. And, um, so loads <coughs> of journals. I have one of the journals me. in front of me. A friend loves at all things. So this, it looks like it's for kind of a teenage girl at uh, this particular journal. Lovely purple colour on the front and lovely illustrations. So uh, most of them, are they kind of prayer journals? Don't the, you? Oh, yes, yeah, they're prayer journals and verses of scripture on each page. And um, yes, and then we have little coasters there as well, which is, is another great stocking. To uh, uplift filler. you when you're having your cup of tea, one of them has beautiful imagery of 
of a hummingbird and a robin and it says flowers appear on the earth the season of singing has come that is from the song of Solomon in the morning I will sing of your love that's from Psalm 59 16 lovely there you go you can you can weave scripture into your day in so many different ways and it can be having a cup of tea and they're beautiful looking as well and you've lots of lovely little notepads as well again when if you I don't know carry one of these in your pocket or whatever to write the shopping list or or I tell you what I use a notepad for earlier on the show we were talking about screen time and how bad it is for kids and we find ourselves in a situation where we're at dinner when we're having chats and things that we would remember that we had to do you'd have to take your phone out to put a note down and I really don't like phones at the kitchen table mm. so I started having a little notepad on the kitchen table and say if we think of things that are need to go on our phone later we'll write them down oh, very so good. these are little these are handy little notepads but that have a message on the front the front of them one says I will never leave nor forsake you scripture from Hebrews and another lovely one in front of me I know there's loads of them Dougie the joy <laughs> of the Lord is your strength um, so l- just lots of little stocking fillers that you can give people especially lovely little gifts for people that maybe you're just trying to share your faith with in yeah. a very um, gentle way there's exactly. really lovely ideas there now finally for music for yeah. you we've got um, Building 429 that's called Live the Journey of course you'll hear Building 429 on Spirit Radio all the time and um, this is their latest release is it Dougie? Yeah and it, it, three years in the making was which is very interesting and it's a very um, all the tracks are written by um, the members of it does 10 tracks and it's written by them and it's just a powerful CD and like the two well-known songs is You Can and The Same God and as you say you do hear Building 49 on Spirit Radio Often. So there you go. I know there's a lot of Building 49 fans. So that is our latest CD and that is coming in at 15 euros. I've been chatting to Dougie Hobson of Footprints in Dunleary. If you're visiting Dunleary in Dublin, do make sure that you pop in and say hello to Dougie. It's a lovely place to visit, by the way. Beautiful walks on the pier. They have a lovely Christmas market there at the moment and lovely Christmas lights as well. Dougie, thank you so much for joining and us. Thank you, Wendy. And happy Christmas. And, and very, happy Christmas to all our listeners. A very happy and blessed Christmas to you. <laughs> Well, it's been three years since the Paris Agreement, which saw the basically the start of an international climate agreement begin. But have the countries that signed up to this agreement actually lived up to the promises that they've made? This week, scientists, politicians, diplomats, activists are all gathered in Poland for the biggest climate change event since then, which aims to look at that, to look at the Paris Agreement and say, has it been put into practice? It's the 24th conference of the parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Thank God there's a shorthand for it, also known as COP24 and just in the context of this conference actually happening we have a story in the newspapers today which is looking at Ireland's performance on taking action on this issue and we are ranked among the worst in Europe certainly not an accolade that we should be proud of on the line to give us his thoughts we have Paul Melia environmental editor for the Irish Independent Good morning Paul how are you? I'm very well thanks Let's take it back to the Paris Climate Agreement what is it and what has it achieved since it was started? Okay, Paris Climate Agreement uh, was um, struck in 2015 in Paris and basically you had about 200 nations from across the world coming together and the, the, the upshot of it all really was that they committed to taking action to keep average global temperature rises to no more than 2 degrees by 2100 and to pursue efforts, as they put it, to keep them below 1.5. Now, these figures are important. The scientists reckon if you go beyond 2 degrees, you end up into kind of catastrophic climate change where you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, keeping it below that figure is obviously hugely useful because it gives you a little bit of certainty. Keeping it below 1.5 is even better because it means that low-lying countries 
um, particularly small island nations in the Pacific, basically will have a chance of avoiding being wiped away, literally wiped away by rising sea levels. So that Paris deal is due to come into force by 2020. So in other words, from 2020 it comes through. What has it achieved since? Well, basically, what the world is on a path of warming of about 3.2 degrees. So no country really in the world has actually committed to reducing emissions to the required level necessary to keep them below 2 degrees, much less 1.5 degrees. What the, uh, the, the conference in Poland is all about is really two things. The first thing is coming up with a way of verifying that countries are doing what they're saying they're doing. So this is called the Paris Rulebook. So in other words, if, for example, China says we are going to do the following thing, how do you measure that? And so how do you make it transparent and clear that, in fact, China or the States or Europe or whatever country it is, is actually doing what they're saying they're doing? So the big thing is the Paris Rulebook, a set of rules that basically says you are committed and your, your emission reductions are going to be verified. And, and will there be sanctions if countries don't adhere to it? Or is it just kind of like a, a gentleman's agreement? It's a gentleman's agreement. There is no sanctions. So the, the idea basically being, though, is that if, if every country is moving uh, in the right direction, but you have a few laggards, that basically the rest of your partners in the deal will turn around and tell you that you need to do more. Now, the second part of the Polish talks uh, has to do with this thing called the Talanoa Dialogue. And that basically is, it's a concept from, from, again, the Pacific Islands. The idea being is you get countries together and they talk about the challenges and they talk about what they're going to do through a kind of an open and inclusive uh, dialogue. And that basically is ratcheting up ambition. So what, at the end of it on Friday, what we would really like to see is, first thing is that the Paris Rulebook is done, there is a system to verify emission cuts, and then under the Talanoa Dialogue, that all countries and all signatories to the Paris Climate Deal have actually committed to being more ambitious in the emission reduction targets to try to keep warming below 1.5. Presumably, Paul, at an event like this, there is going to be a lot of politics being played, and there is conflicts. I mean, it's being held in Poland, the EU's largest coal producer. You've got oil-producing nations such as Saudi Arabia there. What has been the dynamic so far? Well, I mean, it hasn't been great in a lot of respects. I mean, this week we had the, the United Nations uh, did a report, they published it a couple of months ago, talking about what we needed to do to keep the world to a 1.5 degree warming. And Russia, Kuwait, uh, the United States, uh, and I think Saudi Arabia as well, basically refused to include that in a communique from the, the talks to basically say that they had welcomed this report. Instead, they just noted it. Now, that's not great because that basically says that they're not really, if they were welcoming it, it would, it would suggest that they're going to be more ambitious by just noting it. They've just noted it. The second thing that's happened this week is that the Trump administration from the U.S. has been on a big coal is great um, roadshow. So they had an event there uh, this week where they basically tried to talk about the virtues of coal, saying, you know, coal could be a clean fuel, and if you captured the emissions from it, then, you know, we could use that uh, to power our economies going forward. That was interrupted by a number of protesters because, look, really, the world is moving away from coal. It doesn't matter what Trump says. While there is a lot of, of plants being built in India in particular, there's also huge investments in solar in India, and they're playing catch-up all the time. But basically what we're seeing in the States is that coal has not actually... Uh, risen to the extent that Trump or anything close to the extent that Trump said it would do because basically they're fracking oil and gas which is cheaper and it's more reliable so the era of coal seems to be kind of moving away but yet the Trump administration in the US are still pushing it as being a great clean fuel. Poland obviously has a thing where it is as you said the biggest coal producer in Europe. Poland's idea basically these talks, they talk about a just transition so a just transition basically for a small island nation means our country will not be washed away by the sea uh, for Poland and for fossil fuel countries like that, a just transition is 
How do you protect the workers that currently work in these industries? How do you protect their wages and their living conditions as we transition away? So the polls are very keen that something like that comes out of these talks. Do you think that comes into it enough? I mean, when you think, consider the impacts of, of climate change, overall, the, the hardest impacts are felt by the poorest people in the world uh, by a problem that they, for the most part, have not caused. Is that really brought into the frame enough, the idea of real justice for some of these countries? There is. I mean, they talk about climate justice and you're absolutely right. I mean, less developed countries tend to suffer more. Rich people can escape climate change. For example, you can sell your house and move to higher ground to avoid flooding. Um, That is absolutely correct. I mean, there is more and more of that being discussed because there's just a sense that, look, if, if climate change is left unaddressed, what happens is that these, you know, you get more of these extreme weather events, you start to get more climate refugees, which is already happening. And in fact, Ireland has had climate refugees and previous ministers have talked about this in that I think 150 families have sought to be relocated from their homes because they've been repeatedly flooded. So right across the board, there is this climate refugees. I mean, they talk, if you take it to an extreme level, or perhaps maybe not that extreme, if you get people fleeing the land to go to the cities because, you know, they can't grow crops and they can't survive, um, then you obviously have huge pressures in the urban areas. And they say then, you know, when you have water reductions, particularly in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, you could end up with wars being fought over water and access to water. So it behoves us all, I think, to try and get, uh, you know, to seriously ratchet up ambition to try and reduce emissions so that you just prevent these things. I mean, there's enough complication in the world without having to deal with this on top of things. Uh, so I think that's guiding a lot of this thing of, of the climate justice. Putting that poll then in the Irish context and that news today that we are ranked as one of the worst in the EU and, and among the worst in the world according to the Climate Change Performance Index. It's, it's another story and of course we, we, we know in relation to just meeting our targets on reducing carbon emissions and, and the kind of EU targets that have been set, we're not even coming close to meeting those. So you, you, you do get a little bit weary at the government's inability to take this issue seriously. Uh, you do, certainly. I mean, by, by 2020, we were supposed to have reduced our, our emissions by 20%. We're probably going to be about 1% below, largely by accident rather than design. So, in other words, you know, we had a recession, so that certainly helps because obviously economic output dropped. Um, in terms of things like uh, agriculture, those emissions are up. They've dropped in transport, but that's largely due to fuel tourism, people going north. So, yeah, we certainly are laggards on this. I think what's kind of Possibly interesting or what's somewhat changing is Richard Bruton is now in charge of the, the Climate Action Department, and he's certainly talking to talk. I mean, where Dennis Nocton in the past spoke about bringing people with you, uh, Richard Bruton seems to be more along the lines of, look, we have a, a serious problem. He sought government approval to produce a new climate plan, which is going to be out early in the new year. And where he is saying what's going to be in the plan is you will have targets by sector. So in other words, transport will have to do the following, agriculture will have to do the following, but you're also going to have clear lines of responsibility. So you're going to have a minister responsible for them. So if the minister isn't driving the necessary reductions, they will be held accountable. I think that's a very positive thing. But look, without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, we have a huge agricultural lobby and, and politicians are very reluctant to interfere with that. We have a very dispersed rural population, so we have a problem with transport. You know, you can't put in bus services to serve every part of the country because we're so dispersed. So the way that you deal with that is you make your cities, your towns and your villages more compact and you say to people going forward, look, you can't actually build one-off houses. You've got to build in, in, in a village and drive to work to your farm or wherever you work like they do in other countries. And if you do that, you reduce commuting, you make the towns better, uh, they're more sustainable. Then you can do things like, you know, in, in villages around the country, stick solar panels on all the roofs of all the buildings in it. All of a sudden now you're kind of generating a lot of your own power. You're reducing emissions, you're reducing bills. 
So there's all of this kind of societal change that needs to happen. And, and one thing that is happening out there is this process called the National Dialogue on Climate Action, where there is these regional meetings. There have been two already, one in, one in Westmeath and one in Kerry. There will be more and then local meetings. It's talking to people on the ground and saying, here is the science. Here's some of the solutions. What do you think? What do you think we should be going to? Now, I went to one of those, and what was very striking was a lot of the, the suggestions from people who were at that meeting who were not all greenies. I mean, they were from right across society. Just interested stuff. in the issue and want to do something. Yeah, about it. yeah, and they were very practical because a lot of their suggestions were things like eat food grown locally, which is a very thing. So that means then if people are willing to do that, it means perhaps you can't eat every veg you want throughout the year, but, you know, you just eat it when it's in season. The other thing they said was use public transport more. That suggests you need more public transport services. So people weren't talking about compulsory, you know, vegetarianism or population controls. They were talking about very practical things that could be done, that could be done quite easily. So that's kind of interesting and, and, and uh, in, in itself. And perhaps we need to focus more on that, even, even just that example of, do you know how many air miles your avocado or whatever you're eating does, you know? And uh, there's so many little things that individuals can do. Paul, thanks so much for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Paul Melia, Environmental Editor for The Irish Independent. Well, the abortion bill is currently being considered in the Shannon and it seems the same pattern as has been seen in the dawn and indeed the Oireachtas Health Committee is emerging. So various amendments that I think a lot of people, whatever way they voted, would see as humane, but they're being rejected without a lot of debate and the tone is far from civil. Well, our next guest has been involved with a number of the amendment proposals. Yesterday, he described the bill as a destructive law which sets men and women against each other, mothers and children against each other and sets its face against finding a better and more humane way to deal with crisis pregnancy and to protect all human beings involved on the line to tell us more about the Shannon debate and indeed his contribution to the debate. We have Independent Senator Ronan Mullen. Good morning Ronan. Good morning Wendy. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the debate yesterday and how the amendments were received. Well the debate came to committee stage yesterday which means this is the the main stage when legislation is considered when amendments get tabled when people can speak over and back with the government about them and people can contribute their views on each other's amendments and uh, what happened yesterday they've tabled they tabled 6 hours for debate um, and there'll be another 8 hours today the government are very anxious to get this whole thing done this week uh, so their plan is to get the committee stage finished tonight and go on to the report stage on Thursday, which will be a shorter but final opportunity to table amendments. And they want to get this uh, passed uh, this week and get it to the president for signing between five and seven days, which is what the Constitution requires. But the trouble is, of course, that this means that they are, there's no serious um, engagement with the ideas being tabled. Um, I'd, I'd have to say that yesterday the tone was certainly more civil than it was in the Dáil. Uh, and I think that might be because there were criticisms of the government and of the pro-abortion side for just the, you know, th- there were really some brutal comments from people like Kate O'Connell and others in the Dáil against people tabling sincere pro-life, humane uh, amendments. Um, I think both for reasons that they want to get it through quickly uh, and, and they don't want to expose themselves to those criticisms. There is more restraint. Um, also, the people on the, if you like, tabling amendments to make it more extreme in favour of abortion are not asking for their amendments to be voted on and they're not speaking in detail about what they're proposing. So you get the impression that they're on board with the government plan to get the thing through as quickly as possible. So I was only just heckled on one occasion. 
yesterday and I, I'm you know I myself I don't want to be attacking people but I do want to speak sincerely and no, no, at no more length than is necessary but, but in full detail about what we're proposing our amendments are very sane and we'll be coming to the big ones today to do with the rights of uh, pharmacists and midwives and doctors and students in all those areas not to be involved in any way in the, in, and not to be vulnerable to a dismissal or disciplinary sanction for not wanting to be involved with abortion and the need to consider and sorry the need to provide a pain relief where abortions uh, are later term uh, and 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 also yesterday i was tabling amendments to try and ensure that babies uh, where procedures, these procedures, of course, are all intended to end the life of the fetus. But I was trying to table amendments to say, look, where any of this would happen after viability, that every effort should be made to save the life of the baby. And I have been saying, and this, is, this led to a bit of heckling, but I have been challenging uh, the minister on his honesty and on his truthfulness uh, during the campaign and indeed during the debate. Yeah, I mean, during the referendum, he, the minister did say there would be no late-term abortions. Do you feel that a lot of people, whatever way they voted, Senator Mullen, would would be unaware that at the moment in the legislation's present state that late-term abortions are certainly allowed for. Absolutely. 34% voted absolutely no to any of this. And, and many yes voters, you know, were voting for what they saw as restrictive abortion. They would be horrified at the fact that there is no pain relief at any stage of these uh, late-term abortions provided for or required by this law. They would be horrified that there is no requirement on medics to try and save the life of the child where an abortion is sought after viability. They would be horrified that there's no distinction between a mental or a physical health claim for abortion even because we know from the evidence that mental health is not helped by abortion so you know we really have had a very dishonest presentation by the government on this they've claimed oh none of this stuff will happen doctors save lives and all of that but this is Orwellian doublespeak because the protections simply aren't there in the legislation because the other thing that the Minister for Health assured people of that abortion wouldn't be allowed on the grounds of disability do you feel that that promise will be kept? Well, if the minister has his way, it will not. In fact, that's the very issue that I'm coming to. I'll be the first. I reported progress, which is the term you use when the debate comes to the end of a scheduled time and the person who's speaking reports progress. So it'll pick up with me again at 2.15 today. And I will be coming to that very amendment that I tabled yesterday evening, which is that the, abo- that the abortion without reason uh, for up to 12 weeks, that where the doctor um, believes that this is for uh, the, the baby has been aborted on the grounds of the gender or the race or, or disability that, 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 that they wouldn't certify for abortion. Um, that is the, the minister claimed that abortion on grounds of disability would be specifically ruled out. That cannot be true as things stand because we know that some of these disabilities can be diagnosed within the 12-week period and therefore that can be the basis for uh, an abortion. Now, the only thing we could do in that situation is say, if the doctor believes it's for any of these reasons, that that doctor, he or she must not certify. That if, if the minister really wants to specifically exclude disability, as he was claiming he would, and a lot of people may have relied on that in voting for the referendum, then, then he should be accepting this amendment. But, we, but it is, I'm afraid it, what we are faced with is only about half of people are actually voting. There's only five, six of us voting for the pro-life amendments. 
Uh, you have people who were pro-life in the past who are going through the lobbies voting for this terrible legislation and you even have, I believe, a few people just hiding from the chamber and not coming down because Senator they're not Mon, in favour of it. How do, you feel just about, how do you feel just about the general kind of awareness of some of these issues? And I'd like to refer to something that happened last week um, where it, it seemed that TD Deputy Kate O'Connell uh, didn't understand the concept of perinatal hospice care, which the Rotunda defines as palliative care, an active total holistic approach to care focused on enhancing the quality of uh, life for the baby and their and their family, doing lots of practical things um, like allowing for mums to not have to sit in waiting rooms with other mums who have healthy babies, f- photographs organised when the baby was born, all this uh, holistic care. She described it, uh, she seemed to think it was some sort of incarceration for women um, and it was one of those moments where I think if you were watching the debate you wondered do those legislating on this issue have a real understanding of some of the most important elements of this debate? Yeah, I, that's a very fair question. And I think that um, it's, you never really know with politicians because you, you, you never know whether it's just sheer ignorance in, that, uh, in the sense of not knowing. Um, and obviously, you, can be, you, you should be blamed for that because you're paid to know. Uh, and if you're talking, you should certainly know what you're talking about. Or is it something worse, which is willfully misunderstanding so as to cast... Um, you know, insult at your opponent. And uh, I'm not going to make that judgment about what Kate was saying, but what she was saying was absolutely unbelievable. And I think if we had a more vigilant media in this country, you know, stuff like that would be brought strongly to the fore. And because I can assure you, if it was somebody on the pro-life side that was said something as, as, as crazy, as, as unhinged as that, it, we'd never hear the end of it. Breed O'Brien, to her credit, wrote about it, I think, in the Irish Times at the weekend, and that would have brought it to some public notice. But you'd have to say that, you know, obviously uh, uh, not including spirit in this, but, you know, but media coverage of what has been going on has been very, very poor. And that has facilitated the government's sallying on untroubled with this terrible legislation. How do you feel, Senator Mullen, and have you, have you seen, just when you consider there's been a lot of, um, uh, I suppose, worries put out there by various different medical professionals, be it doctors, midwives, and not just those who would say they're pro-life. A lot of interventions have been made by doctors who say, look, I'm pro-choice, but this is being, um, I think, frenzied was one of the words that was mm. used last week by mm. an obstetrician from the Rotunda in terms of just railroading the legislation through. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're asking me, you know, how I feel about that, I just don't know where it's coming from. It's like the government is in the grip of the abortion industry and everything they want, they must have. And anything that would, you know, suggest a restraint in terms of uh, helping people to... To, to, to think twice. For example, I will have amendments uh, as we're in the Dáil uh, this week. Uh, one of the amendments, we'll, we'll talk about informed consent. And one aspect of informed consent uh, in the context of the abortion that is done um, medically using pills is that at a certain point that process is refer- reversible. Um, in that you take one pill and then another second pill between the first and the second pill a person could change their mind and they could reverse the process. Now as a matter of law it should be an obligation on anybody involved in an abortion to inform the patient. In any other area of medicine informed consent isn't just considered a good thing. It's a, it's a basic it's a right and uh, uh, but again uh, the government has not 
not accepted uh, amendments that would that would provide information uh, to women and, and 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 these are the very people that go on about paternalism you know but they don't actually want women to have the information that they might that actually might in some cases cause them to change their mind and say actually i don't want to go through with this process so it seems like they they favor a conveyor belt approach to abortion and at taxpayers expense i think they're spending about twice uh, on paying doctors paying doctors i think twice to be involved in abortions than to be involved in, in normal maternity care throughout pregnancy. And I think that's, uh, that fact alone illustrates how sick this is. So finally, just to ask you, Senator Mullen, if you could sum up the debate on this abortion legislation so far, how would you do that? A terrible reflection on our, on our parliamentary system. Um, um, you know, our politicians really should call themselves aside. They should look at the core text of what they're voting for. A reminder that decent people can be conditioned to believe and support anything. Because, you know, when you look at this um, uh, legislation, it is just one bad thing after another. But I am not without hope. We, we, we lay the groundwork in the way we oppose this legislation now. And I think if the minister uh, and the government persist in rejecting all our amendments about, you know, civilized, humane pain relief for babies that are aborted from 20 weeks on or uh, freedom of conscience for, for people, I think it's going to be an election issue in the future. I think these are, go- these are the very issues that we can show uh, to, to convince people in the future just how unhinged all this has been. It is extremely tragic that this is happening. Innocent lives will be lost, but we will be working for a better future and we, and, and we don't give up. And in fact, we redouble our efforts and we do it through education and culture. So if the government thinks this is the end, they're very, very naive. This is actually the beginning of a human rights fight back. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen, thank you so much for joining us on the programme this morning. <laughs> There was a time when the ultimate Christmas present for a kid was a new bike. You know, doing something where kids would be getting out and about moving. And it always makes me really sad in many ways when I take Matthew to the playground, let's say, um, or somewhere where kids are doing outdoor stuff. And you just look at them and you go, this is what kids are made to do. They're made to play. They're made to be active. They want to run around. Uh, But yet, as we were reading in the newspapers today about the amount of hours kids under two in this country spend an average of an hour and 15 minutes minutes looking at a screen that's children under two years of age so before an age where they're meant to look at screens at all and we wonder why we are hitting an obesity crisis when it comes to kids in this country but I don't want to be negative about it I want to give you some positive stuff to think about and some practical things that you can do to help kids with their fitness and especially to encourage kids if they haven't been active you know or if they're not sporty kids how can you help them develop good habits in studio to give us some tips and they work a lot doing stuff on kids fitness I have Stephen Kinsler owner and head coach at FSM in Bray. Stephen good morning good morning Wendy. I'm sure your son Jody's probably one of the fittest kids around uh, yeah, well, he's, he's he's very active. I say he's active kid. Um, but yeah, we try. I try keep him active. But your your point is that yeah, kids are being less and less active, and it's showing in regards to as is in the papers. They're buying buying less less bikes for Christmas. It's not like I know when we were growing up, it was like kind of you got a bike for Christmas and you were out all day in it. Hail, rain or shine, you were out on it. You'd be because, gone and that'd be yeah. it. You'd come in red-cheeked and whenever you're hungry. Exactly. Uh, and we're kind of missing a lot, an awful lot of that. And with, with, there's, a, there's a, a kid only knows what it's given, especially under three. So it doesn't automatically assume that it gets like the screen time. It doesn't automatically assume that it gets to do this, that and the other. So it's, it's a point where the parent has to be active. And whether you want to or not, 
they learn from you. So if you're on your phone the whole time. Now, I do a lot of work off my phone, and I've had my son say to me, data phone, data working. Uh, and then, like, you know, you kind of have to check yourself and go, yeah, you're still on your phone. Spend time with your kid and uh, play. Just get on the floor and play with them. And they will interact and play more and have a better imagination if they see you playing alongside them and it's just this is just this is just factual this is just what happens is that the starting point then is you know active parents mean active kids yeah to a point now i'm sure there's active parents out there that they find it hard to get their children to but again that's where you're leading a child down the the road of you must play a sport which doesn't really work for every child not every child wants to play a sport and a lot of children need to be taught how to move right in like teach them how to move their bodies because they're naturally uncoordinated or they're wallflowers and they're naturally shy. Well, what would be your advice there? Because at the weekend I ha- was over in my in-laws and we had Matthew there and his little cousin who's a similar age to him. And as he was playing peekaboo behind a table and then ju- climbing up on the table and running around, she was just sitting there. Wa- I'm very happy to sit mm. there watching. And it just struck me about their, their similar age, but they're such different personalities. How do you encourage a child like that who's just, they're just not as active naturally to kind of get out there and move? Well, you've got to find something that's going to stimulate them, something that they want to do. And it, 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 finding that can be hard, especially for a child, because a lot of children can't communicate properly to you. So if, if a child's happy to watch someone do something, that's fine. But if that's all the time, then you've got to find something and try and coax them that when you do it, you have fun. And everyone wants to have fun. So if you found something that your, your niece was interested in doing that would make her laugh, and giggle and like even if it's kind of wrestling or like like play fi- play fighting or wrestling or it's uh, playing a game or something that gets her attention then she's going to be active it's finding the right thing but it's it's what we what I kind of see is that it's the shoe like it's one size doesn't fit all so just because you like to play peekaboo doesn't necessarily mean she wants to play yeah. peekaboo. And have you seen that with the kids that you've kind of worked with over the years? I'm sure you get kids from all different ages and stages and everything, but where um, maybe maybe as parents we kind of give up too easily and then you get these kids in and they're, all of a sudden they're having fun and they're, and they're moving when they're given the opportunity. Are we yeah. not giving them the chance enough to move? Well, yeah, we, we get a lot of children in our program that are not naturally coordinated, so they're not excelling or progressing through sport. Uh, and we, we're finding that even the kids that we are getting in that just don't like sports in general. They just don't want to be a part of a team. They just don't so like being... So not all kids are sporty. Exactly. But they love exercise. They love what we do. They love like coming in, working on handstands. They love rolling, tumbling, like pretty much just movement. So we're still building an exercise uh, philosophy in their life without it being a team environment. But... In our gym, it is a cultural community, so it's a team environment without uh, the best player plays. And unfortunately, that's where sport goes. And we teach, like yesterday, we were teaching rowing to our kids, and a lot of our kids that wouldn't naturally want to do the strength work love the rower. They really love the rower. Which I think most parents would be like, really? Because you you probably as a parent think, I hate the rower. Why would my child like it? Kids like burpees. Adults don't like burpees. It's just a, it's a human nature. It's, it's human nature. But I find that a lot of kids that we get that are non are not coordinated really, really excel and really, really enjoy. And we've even had really good feedback from parents, as in they're more focused in school. Uh, they're just they're they're more kind of 
well-mannered at home. Happier, because they're more energetic. Happier, yeah. they're burning off energy more than they would than going to a sport. And if you, like, there's nothing worse than if you play football and you go on a Saturday and you're on the sideline for whatever, like the 90 minutes, you get put on for two, three minutes. Like, what's that teaching anyone? You don't need, I suppose, to be a scientist or an ev- evolutionary expert to go. And I remember you, Stephen, saying before, if we were to mimic a child's um, movements, mm. you know, in terms of how fit that they are, especially when they're young, you, we as adults would need to kind of ha- have the stamina of a professional athlete. Oh, yeah. In other words, their bodies are made to be super fit and move. And they've been that way for a long time. And very quickly, we've had a rapid change in, in kids going into more sedentary lifestyles and video games and all that sort of stuff what's your advice for parents where they're kind of listening going my kids are already in these bad habits and I just I find it really difficult to even when I'm you know telling them that this they still don't want to do it and it's kind of dragging the feet where do you start well for for us when we get kids in that like are kind of not active it's it's finding their catalyst finding what they really like to do or someone they really admire and it's hard as parents because kids as they get older they're not as your parents aren't as cool and that's just damn I know I know <laughs> um, but it's kind of it's earn reward so you got to teach them the principle of right this is gone you're going to have a couple of nightmare weeks with them but then it's like right you will earn um, playtime if you let's say read two chapters of your book you will earn uh, the screen time if you um, are exercising, doing like going to the fitness class, or you're doing this, 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 this week. Yeah. And it's just movement or playing. And what happens is that kid that's reading the book gets into that book and he'll read more than two chapters. At first, they'll just read two chapters and put it down and want to play to get a screen time. But eventually, though, their imagination starts. It's almost to keep, weaning them off. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of what you have to do. Or you could go all in and just go, right, screen time off. You get it on Saturday and Sunday, and that's it. Um, but it is you have to be you have to stick to it. And as much as the kids are going to give out and they're going to go, mom, 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 you know that I go like I get that, dad, dad, dad. Can I have? Can I have? Can I have? And you're like, no. sometimes well, it'd be easier if I just give them the, the screen time, or we can go right. How do I want them to? Because if they're doing it at two, three, four, by the time they're sixteen, what are they going to be like? They're going to expect everything. If they if they give out enough, they'll get it in the end. Yeah. So we have to teach them. Firstly, um, how to earn something, earn reward, and then how to just not everything comes free. You have to. You Instant have to gratification be- is not necessarily <coughs> a good thing. What about just? Um, I know one of the things a lot of parents find difficult, myself included, is dark nights. You know, it's four o'clock. It's getting dark. I can't go to the playground. It's too mm. dark. To whatever. What do you do, kind of indoors at home, that can just keep your kids moving and active? Well, that is, that is, and I, again, I would have all the answers until I had a kid, and now I get it, <laughs> and, I'm, and I apologize for my answers years ago, um, but yeah, no, if, uh, play, like, turn off the TV. Hide and seek, best game ever. Turn off the TV, turn off all the screens, and play games, and regardless of who you are or what age your child is, once they start playing that game, they will start enjoying it and they will start having fun. Now, I get like teenage, but we're talking like from 12 years down. Like we played a sock game. The sock game in, 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 in work is is simply you you put a bunch of socks in the middle of the floor and then you have to go hop on one foot, get the sock and bring it to the other end of the room. So you can do that in your living room. And you do it for a timer for two minutes. The winner gets the most socks. You're getting to exercise. You're, you're actually developing foot mechanics and uh, foot arch. So, so you're, you're getting a lot of bang for your book out of that game. 
Uh, you can play Twister, like board games. Like, like you can be active, 100% active. You can play any board game with a penalty that, like, also if you lose or if something goes wrong, you have to do five push-ups or you have to, like, there's little things that you can throw in. And you just have to be creative. Um, and that keeps kids moving and you keeps moving them as moving, well. But the, the evenings are tough, but it's it's simple. You got to, like, plan your, like, plan your dinners, plan your week, plan your activity with your kids. And even if they don't want to do it, you, you make the only way you can make a routine is be consistent. And if it's consistent, then it's automatic. You want to start a tradition in your house. Every Friday night, we do board game fitness. And that's something I don't know what board game fitness is, but you can just make a board game fitness. Yeah, and then I imagine it'd be one of those things that your kids will really look forward to. And here, the yeah. thing that strikes me about this is, as parents, our kids want to spend time with us. They want to play with us. And do it before they stop because when they're teenagers, they tend to want to stop hanging around with and their parents. And you'll be sorry so that you didn't do it you more. You need those time. You need those, yeah. For sure. Uh, some great advice as always. I've been telling to Stephen Kinsler, who's the owner and head coach at FSM in Bray. If you want to get in touch with Stephen, their website is fsmbray.ie or indeed you can find them on Facebook as well. And Stephen has a lot of experience and can, can definitely help you out if you're trying to get your kids into fitness and of course for adults as well. Well, we've been chatting to relationships coach Catherine Gray about the seven deadly relationship sins. So what are they? Well, mistakes that we can often make that could actually prevent us from meeting the right person or continuing on a journey with the right person. And I think that many of them, we all fall into them at one time or another, whether it's in a romantic relationship, family relationships, friendships. Last week, we talked about having the wrong attitude and not being interested in the people you meet. And today we're on sin number five, which is being in a rush. So what impact can this have and what can we do about it on the line to tell us more we've Catherine Gray director of Heavenly Partners good morning to you Catherine good morning Wendy lovely to be back again for okay. number five being in a rush is definitely a modern malaise for sure where people always seem to be just really busy I mean that is the kind of default answer that people say when you say how are you they say really busy up to my eyes almost sometimes as they are continuing in their stride as you're trying to talk to them what impact does this type of an attitude have on dating well, you're absolutely right, Wendy. A lot of us are very busy in our lives, but I think this is different to being busy. This is being in a rush to to get the relationship going and possibly even to get married. And um, it's 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 not spending enough time getting to know someone. Um, it's not being genuinely interested in them, and it's trying to like get to the end result really, really quickly. And it's it's a real turn off. It makes people really intense because they're in a hurry, and there's nothing worse for the person that it's being done to because it makes them feel all this person is interested in is the end result. They're not really interested in me, and it's a massive turn off. So it has really, really big consequences. So this is like you might be on a first date with somebody, and all of a sudden you're trying to assess: Are they marriage material? Do they want kids? You rather than just enjoying the time you're spending with them. Absolutely. Now, we have one of our members who um, very sadly is like this. Um, I obviously won't mention any names, but he's a, a widowed man and he's desperate to get remarried. And he keeps meeting all these women and basically... Um, within the sort of first, almost the first contact, saying to them, I think we're right to marry. I think it would be great if we could get married. I can, I can see what it's going to be like in a few months. And almost immediately, the women are running a mile. And we can't get through to him that this does not work. And he actually is, is spending a lot more time being single because he won't slow down and get to know people and be genuinely interested in them. All that's coming across is he wants marriage 
doesn't really matter who the woman is as long as he can get married. And of course, when you're getting that message, it's, inc- it's an incredible turn off because you think this man isn't really interested in me. Yeah. He just wants to get married. And that presumably also changes, kind of probably not entirely disconnected when you're not interested enough in particular things because it's, you're, you know, you're trying to get to the finish line without running the race. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, and, and, it's, and it's very important to, um, to take things slowly in a relationship. I mean, to, to get to know somebody, to get to know whether they're really suitable for you, to get to know what they're really like, what their character's like. And we've got another lovely couple I'd love to tell you about who are called um, David and Jill. And the, the sort of opposite thing happened to them. They went on a, a first date and immediately decided they didn't fancy each other. And they were very, very open and basically said, well, oh, I don't fancy you. It's never going to go to marriage um, so that sort of took all the pressure off and they said but actually we've got on really really well and we'd like to stay in touch and it's an amazing story because all the hurry had come out of it even though they were both keen to get married all the hurry of meeting each other and and getting to that marriage place had come out of it because they basically decided that they weren't right for each other and they had a really slow and lovely friendship and I think about eight months nine months later Jill realized that her feelings had changed and she was actually feeling quite um, strongly positive towards David and she had a conversation with him and he realized that actually his feelings had changed and they did then go on to get married and they've been married for about 10 years now. So it's the complete opposite of the other chap. Um, and that's, that's a wonderful story of what happens when you do take things slowly. You genuinely get to know someone. You take all the pressure out. And in fact, what you first thought might not have worked can actually turn out to work beautifully. And they're really happily married and a wonderful couple. Is the irony here, Catherine, that for so many people that are in a rush because they want to settle down, they want to get married, that they end, end up actually wasting a lot more time, which is what a, a part of it is about, by um, turning off a lot of people? Well, absolutely. I, I think I can think of many people, and not least the, the man I mentioned before, who's he has sadly been on our books for for many many years, and actually it's taking him way longer to find the right person because he's in such a rush, and he keeps sort of spoiling all the people we're introducing him to because he's in such a rush. So yes, it is it is an, um, really strange that being in a rush actually takes makes it take a lot lot longer for you to find that perfect person and find what you're looking for. It's probably one of those things though that it's it's a hard one to crack because it's at the back of your mind you know that um, you have a particular goal you don't on the, on the one hand you don't be in the ru- on a rush but on the other hand I know you gave the lovely example of that couple there you don't want to waste your time either so what are the steps people can take to just try and break this habit well, I think like all of these deadly relationship sins, it's being aware. We've talked about that a lot, haven't we, Wendy, about being aware of these things because they are difficult habits to break and trying to say, almost trying to put it in God's hands as well and say, look, God, I know that you want me to get married. Um, that's your probably your desire for me because it's a great desire of mine. And I'm just going to try and make really good friends with as many people as possible. And I'm going to put that desire for marriage on the, on the back burner for now. Perhaps I'm going to give myself a year just to make as many good friends as possible and just to take the pressure off yourself because I think when you've got that goal and you've got it like I want to be married by you know this time next year it puts a lot of pressure on so if you can sort of if you can sort of put that goal on hold and say, right, I'm just going to make really good friends with people, that would be a way to help you. And then you, your eyes are opened. And when you're really concentrating on friendship before you know it, just like David and Jill, you might discover that that friendship has actually changed and has become something a bit more special. So is that the thing we need to focus on, building a friendship first? 
Absolutely. That is so important because at the, at the heart of a long-term relationship, two people are great friends. And if you aren't friends, then when other sort of pressures come in or things that, you know, perhaps you really, you know, you really thought they were very attractive, but, you know, after 20, 30 years of marriage, the, the looks have changed a bit. If you're still friends at the heart of your relationship, that's what's going to lead to a really good, strong and long-term relationship. I think there might be people listening at the moment, maybe they can identify with this themselves or they're thinking of a friend, okay, that, that you know, they're looking at this friend and they're thinking they're just so lovely and they really want to meet someone, but they just, they just, they always put the cart before the horse, you know, and get kind of carried away. Um, how do you help that person say, without being kind of mean about it, to kind of calm down and let them be aware that they're rushing? I think it's a very difficult one, possibly pointing it out to them. I mean, I've got friends who are dating and they're going through two or three dates, um, four dates a month, and they're, they're only seeing somebody once because they're like, nope, he's not right for me, or nope, she's not right for me. And I think you've just got to say, look, you know, have a target of making 10 new friends and going on a date. We have a three-date rule that says you've got to go on three dates with someone, at least even if after your first date you think they're not right for you because on the first date you never really are yourself. They're not themselves. You're both nervous. Uh, you don't really portray who you are. And it's only on the second and third date that you begin to relax and see see each other begin to see each other for who they are so i would say again having that goal of perhaps trying to make 10 new friends because that that's 10 new friends is a lot i mean um you know that that would be a great thing to achieve and maybe that focusing on that might help them um and and maybe maybe saying to your friends if you've got people that are listening or people thinking them uh, they've got friends that are in this situation just thinking right we're going to put that put that goal um, of getting married to one side and we're actually going to make the goal of making 10 really good uh, friends of the opposite sex and that's going to be our goal for the next year and I think if somebody focused on that and you really held them to making 10 it would make a huge difference. Uh, it's a really really great goal to set Catherine. What about if the shoe is on the other foot so let's say I go on a date with somebody I go on a date with a guy and I think yeah this could work but he's in a rush and I'm kind of feeling the pressure even though I know it could be something that could work um, and you want to say to the person slow down so there's a way of salvaging things do you think? <laughs> I think that's always a really, really difficult one. And I've, I've seen that happen many times where one side's been in more of a rush. But I think you just simply have to say, I want to take this slower. If you are in a rush, you know, go and find someone else. But if this is the right relationship, you will be prepared to wait like I am prepared to wait. And I think if, uh, if you say that, again, it all comes down to communication, doesn't it? Like in any aspect of any relationship, good communication is critical. And at the beginning of a relationship or, you know, maybe medium term, if you feel the guy is rushing, you need to have that conversation with him. And if he takes it really badly, that's a really bad sign. It would be a warning sign. Now, he might feel very frustrated because he might think, oh, I really want you're the woman for me and I want to propose. But if it's not the right time for you, he should be prepared to wait. And if he's not prepared to wait, I would say let him move on. Well, very good advice as always, Catherine. Thanks so much for joining us on oh, the programme this morning. And next week we're going to be talking about unpacking emotional baggage. 
indeed we are. And how talking in depth about past relationships is a real turn-off and a real no-no, which is why it's deadly relationship number six. Catherine, thanks so much. We'll talk to you at the same time next week. That's Catherine Gray there and the Director of Heavenly Partners. If you want to get in touch with Heavenly Partners, you want to find out more about them, maybe Catherine can help you meet Mr or Mrs Wright. You can call her on 015314997 or visit heavenlypartners.ie. Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.